Welcome to the concentration camp. I'm Karri. This is the kind of film podcast where it's likely that my co-host has spent the day eating roasted rat <laughs> with maize and cabbage soup. He's Henrik. Well, it's not just because of the podcast. That's just you know, that living qualifications in Finland. <laughs> the energy prices are kind of going going sky high and food prices are rising up. And I'm poor as students, so, you know, rat meat it is. Yum, yum, yum. Yeah, there it was spoiled that we're from Finland. And, and what do we do here, Henrik? I think we analyze films. And for the first time, really, we are completely voluntarily talking about a documentary film. Yups, we have been planning on doing a documentary for quite some time, and we like did one, but we didn't do that because you know, hey, let's talk about a documentary film. We did that as a as a Oscars run up episodes because one of those international films happened to be a life story documentary. But yeah, first time that we honestly are like having the the approach of hey let's talk about a documentary feature i wonder what prompted this i for a long time for some reason i was not comfortable going into documentaries but i hear that you're kind of a documentary director as well so hey good roasting point <laughs> yeah so let's see how this goes Basically, usually we just talk about the film and everything around it, and then we finish off with uh, our our quickie section where we kind of wrap it all up and you know, lay out our thoughts. Any housekeeping, or let's get to it. Yep, so today's episode might be something a bit different. Might also be a bit more difficult because, as it turned out, the documentary that we chose for tonight was not really the the easiest one to approach. Or oh, the documentary, the film itself is is easy, but the subject matter is of such such nature that it's kind of hard to find any working angle around it. This is not like you know your your animal documentaries like Blackfish or American political documentaries like anything more made by Alan Moore or anything anything of the sort. This is kind of extremely you don't get really that much material out of the subject matter because spoilers it's it's north korea and also like coming from the western perspective we have we have extremely one-sided point of view we don't really know that much or at least i don't really know that much about north north korea itself outside of what i've read from western sources which are all sources that north korea the country automatically deems unfit and then treats as a as propaganda. So when it comes to some type of a unbiased point of view when it comes to even even finding like that much interesting angles to talk about around the documentary feature itself can't make any promises. Okay, that's that's interesting. Certainly there is a lot of this negative tone always around North Korea, whether we're talking about the hunger aspect or the leadership as- aspect as a whole, whatever it might be, the lack of knowledge about the world that the North Koreans are apparently having. But 
all in all, whenever I read about from from the experts that uh, have been in the country or have studied the country extensively for many, many years, or if I'm indeed listening to the survivors of the camps inside North Korea, whether they are political prison camps or other types of prison camps, what what always rings pretty clear is that the situation is, you know, overall harrowing. Of course, I'm, it's not to say that there aren't moments of happiness also in North Korea, that you couldn't have a nice little jesting moment in North Korea, have a loving family, but that might be very much regionally tied. Like the country's elite and the richest people, as far as we know, live in Pyongyang. And outside of the capital Pyongyang, then it is often quite harrowing. But of course, the the problem with many material from North Korea could be that it is or could be seen as very one-sided. But sometimes it seems that the truth is just too harrowing that it's pretty much true. It's, it's more harrowing than you would expect. The problem with when it comes to talking about North Korea, or like the raising problem is that it always boils down into he said, she said scenarios. We have an expert in in West who who says a thing about North Korea. North Korea reputes back. Those are lies. And then the whole discussion just kind of, it's there. It's an accusation, counter-accusation. We say the starving poor, you know, starving uh, starving to death on the streets. North Korea says that's Western propaganda. We can't prove a goddamn thing. They can't, they refuse to prove a goddamn thing. And then it's kind of like, it, it's basically word against word. Because North Korea constantly refuses to admit to anything. It leads into a situation where we never actually can get into a solid ground where both sides can say, can kind of get a joint foothold on any matter at all. It's always the situation always is that you know whatever is said about North Korea it's it's always painted as as western propaganda. And we, on the other hand, here we don't get... Well, first of all, we don't get the North Korean perspective at all. We don't get North Korean facts, because those pretty much don't exist in North Korea. And it, it's, like I said, it's a, it's a he said, she said situation. That's also very much the case with, with today's documentary feature. Once we get into everything that goes on, around the movie itself, or the story itself, and the story's subject matter. Well, when it comes to North Korean perspective, in some ways I would say that there is no North Korean perspective. I mean, even even if you ask from for the North Korean perspective from the average North Korean, you would still get pretty much what... what it's an unpenetratable wall, it seems, when you're talking to these people. It's just praising the Kim family because it is a subject matter that is being fed from cradle to the grave. You have certain hours where you need to go to these sort of a meditation rooms where you're supposed to read again and again and again, at least in school environment, about the Kim family members and what they what they did. 
And then there is the fact that we are in a psychotic situation where in schools, in basically everywhere, as far as we know, of course, people are in pairs. Everybody is watching over the other person. So even if you would like to say something, you can never spill it out because the other one then would report you to the authorities for saying something bad. It's really weird. And th- maybe this was in a uh, most clearest in some aspects in, in a school un- environment in the Suki Kim's book. She was a South Korean journalist who was teaching in a North Korean university. She was there undercover. She tried to give them like an essay job. Like, here's a piece of paper, try to write an, like a critical essay about something. As essays are critical, you have to analyze and gather the facts. But the students, could, could, students couldn't do that. There's no sources what to read, really. What is fact? Well, I guess you have to go back to reading about the Kim family or reading about the propaganda against the United States. Yeah, if you ask North Koreans about it, that's exactly what did not happen. And most likely the excuse given is that it was a bad, bad assignment or she on purpose failed the, made the students to fail the assignment in order to, you know, fuel into whatever is the Western the whole propaganda machine excuse this week. No, well, surely there is reasons why things are the way they are. Some things are uh, irrefutable, for example, the... The amount of people who died in the great hunger periods in the late 90s, what we can see in the satellite imagery, where we can know the camp's locations. We we can know with the, quite of a minutiae detail where all the different guards are walking on different times. We know these camps are there. So it's like a modern day, modern day Nazi Germany Holocaust type of situation that we're witnessing. I would say it's it's closest to the moment when the Holocaust was going on, like witnessing that. When it comes to exactly how I I feel that the situation is is brewing with with North Korea, when it comes to like getting anything out f- from the North Korean side, or fi- finding a like having the pastors to actually admit to anything, like but basically talking with North Korea today about any atrocities that that go or go goes inside of North Korea it's kind of like arguing with a holocaust denier like that's basically the level of trench you are facing with the exception here is that well against a holocaust denier you actually have like like mountains of evidence from the nazis itself from the regime itself you have physical evidence you have picture evidence you basically like you you have you have a wars of evidence and with north korea you don't have that you only have like the witness statements and those who have defected their statements and basically the uh, analytical reports from the experts but you don't have the smoking gun you don't have the bars of body bones because because all of those they have managed to get rid of because once again, anything that happens in North Korea stays inside of North Korea, and they may try to make it certain as as ever to make make it su- sure that nothing can leak out of North Korea. So 
you you are you are dealing with a Holocaust denier without actually having you know the mass graves. Well, I think we do have the mass graves, don't we? Like aer- we aerial do. footage. We have aerial. We do. Mm. And the counter argument is that's not a mass grave. We have yes, we have the satellite footage of the camps, and the counter argument is where well, they are not starving. We have the video footage inside of North Korea that was that has leaked to the West showing the starving, and the re- answer is well, that was one time where we were hit by I don't know natural phenomena. This. Or that staged. Yeah, but I think we can say that overwhelmingly we have a lot of, let's say then, a lot of small pieces, a lot of separate anecdotal proofs that there is problems in the markets. People are, kids are eating something from the dumpster. We have the images of the camps. We have the evidence of the harrowing economic situation there. We have the evidence that uh, hundreds of thousands of people perished. We have a lot of video evidence. What we have from Kim, on the other hand, is a whole bunch of nothing, just denying everything. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what makes it so frustrating. Mm. Okay. Had we had we stronger counter-arguments that would make it easier to, to form at least some type of an image of a truth, because that's something that you can counterattack and you can debuke or you can debunk it. If it comes down to that, if there were, if, if Kim would ever actually acknowledge any of the accusations, be it as you no know, no matter how small it would be, the thing is, like you said yourself, what we have, especially in quantity. The largest amount of evidence that we have is anecdotal evidence. And that's like, it, it's not like a physical smoking gun. It's easy to, to like, like debunk or, or refute from the North Koreans end. And it kind of, a, like I said, it, it leads into he said, she said situation. Like you and I, yeah, of course, we, we have an understanding of what type of a country North Korea is. We have an understanding of what goes into North Korea. I believe that neither one of us is a fan of North Korea in any sense. But mm. once again, like we don't have the physical. We, do, we don't have anything that we can use to actually nail North Korea, the nation, to the wall and force it to actually, you know, acknowledge or admit anything. Hmm. I would disagree with that, with the amount of evidence that we have that is just pointing to a harrowing position. And, well, and what you would say, what you are saying about North Korea now, I think we could uh, draw a parallel to the situation in U- Ukraine, where we have Russia that is completely denying every wrongdoing possible. In the beginning, they even denied that they are in the Ukraine territory. But now that they're at least open with that, everything else is just, no, didn't do it. We are very much dealing with a similar type of tactic when we talk about, like, like Russia and North Korea shared the same approach to the situation. Yeah. Luckily, with, with Ukraine, the situation is that, well, since Ukraine is its own country, Outsider diplomats and people have been able to enter it, and like Ukraine itself can provide 
well, in in the confines of the freedom that it it can, since it's it's practically a co- ongoing war zone at the moment, but it still can provide openness. And that's something that North Korea refuses to provide you. Well, just to move on, we often jest that we only pick movies that make each country look as bad as possible. But in the case of today's country and topic, it's hard to say anything too good about it, nevertheless, whatever your starting point is. And if there's one thing that I've learned from the experience of doing backgrounds for this film or this documentary, it makes you way more uncomfortable to write about real events than fiction. And when you do write, well, you really know you have to get your facts as correct as possible, or else you might potentially, well, not only be in an uncomfortable situation, but you might get into legal trouble. I think the best approach here is to just go through a bit of a timeline, the timeline as best as I can muster to explain to you (laughs) What is the timeline that we're talking about surrounding the film? Okay, so 1950 to 1953, we of course had the Korean War. And father of Shin and the siblings of Shin were fighting along the South Korean soldiers, according to Shin himself, and killed North Koreans. And that is supposedly the reason Shin's family was in the prison camps, as far as... He can possibly understand the reasoning. 1982, Shin was born at Camp 14, Pyongyang-Namdo. Or he was born in November 19, 1983. And uh, the reason why this year appears somewhere in as 1982, somewhere as 1983, could be as simple of a reason as somebody heard how old he is, and then he drew the conclusion that, okay, he must have been, been born in 1983. Which might be the case, I guess, if you follow the uh, Korean age system, where whenever it's January 1st, you are one year older, automatically. So, 1982 or 1983, in any case. And according to Shin, at age 5 in 1988, I guess, more or less, 1988, let's say, Shin starts school at the age of 5 learns reading, writing, adding, subtracting. And then at age 6, approximately 1989, the family then moves from Camp 14 to Camp 18. And this is the uh, kind of retraction change in his story. Originally, he would have been only in Camp 14, but in 2015, he had to change his story, or he saw that he needed to change his story after the DPRK video of his father surfaced where he gave some information or lack thereof. In any case, Shin probably saw that there were elements that he should correct and well, we are already getting to the subject matter, so Shin lied. Yeah. Why did Shin lie? Well, when it comes to experiencing such a level of trauma, according to Blaine Harden, who who wrote the book Escape from Camp 14, he has heard from psychologists that people who have gone through the things that Shin might have gone through, it is very hard for them to tell a linear, clear story from their memory. So 
there might be many reasons why they do this but first and foremost they are unable to give a complete picture because they don't really have that because you might confuse details and you might even because you might just ignore some finer details because you don't see the value in the information one reason for that might be that the guy has been born in a prison camp in an environment where everything is about competition you are struggling for food you're even fighting with your family to get the food into your mouth i mean this is a guy who has been assigned at the camp apparently to to report on every movement of his mother and vice versa and this is also a guy where who was coming from a camp where you have so little to eat apparently that he would just go to the eat his his mother's lunch or dinner on some occasions after the mother would come home he would not have dinner because she needed it and the thought apparently didn't even occur to him that it would be a bad thing so somehow this sounds like you don't really have proper morals in this camp because everything is about survival you are so hungry that everything is about eating and very much this is corroborated by Shin's need to hear stories about food when he met the a new friend at the camp who he was also supposed to report on but instead they became friends and started to trust each other according to Shin and he was most enthusiastic to hear all the stories about food when his friend was in Pyongyang and other countries he had that experience and he it was according to him his first time when he got to hear about the outside world yeah so considering like shin's lying at this point it's 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 a fact um, everybody even even shin has has acknowledged the fact that he has changed his story so on on those grounds the accusation that shin lied yeah yeah holds true but if i would ask you how how you feel about about his lies like hmm. usually when we use the word lie when when we say that somebody is lying we are implying a criminal intent like they term well, we have like a white lie and then we have lying and usually lying has has some nefarious undermotive going behind it you want to have something extra you want to have more fame you want to have more money resources whatever whatever it is so how do you feel about the situation is is Shin changing his story is it is it like lying or is it more like a white lie in my mind it's mostly it could be partly that he's trying to make a better story because camp 14 is known to the outside world as the most harrowing camp inside north korea whereas camp 18 not so much where he apparently was most of the time anyway i think it's in Shin's case, it's partly the trauma that he didn't want to visit the most uncomfortable topics. I'm referring to the fact that he didn't say from the beginning that he was responsible for the death of his mother and older brother. And on the other hand, most of the details that I think he came out, out with in 2015 then after the book and the film were published in 2012 uh, 
those were, I would say, more minor details and could be attributed to the fact that he just couldn't bother with these details or he just cannot pull a linear timeline out of out of his life because he doesn't have it. But when it comes to Camp 14, Camp 18, yeah, well, they are neighboring ca camps, really. And apparently there's a rail line connecting these camps. And there's even some pondering that maybe Camp 14 or parts of Camp 14 are today Camp 18, but that this change could have happened somewhere in the early 80s. Who knows, but I found that the latest revelations, the changes, latest changes, weren't, they, they didn't change anything that important about his story. You could argue that since he was for years explaining that he was 13, for example, when he went through some of the tortures and then changed it to, oh, I was actually 20 at the time. That could be something where he's trying to make the story more interesting. Could be, but then again, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm really not blaming him for for this, knowing that he is coming from a harrowing situation. For sure, I would say for sure, he has been in a polit political prison camp. And I do think that most of the main events have occurred but in where in the timeline, in which order, how old was he during those events, who knows. And he could have changed some details to, that still haven't been brought into daylight, some details that would be really damning for him in the Western world or anywhere outside of North Korea, frankly. Perhaps he did some really unspeakable things to, to get outside of the camp, but who knows. Touching upon the, the Camp 14, Camp 18 situation, like, and I'm, I'm gonna come, like, come clean right off here. I'm gonna come out of the, the podcast background work closet, so, so to say. From the two of us, you are the one who actually knows this story way better. You are the background work master in, in today's episode. You, you saw, saw the film, you read the book, uh, basically, when it comes to uncovering the background material for today's episode, you single-handedly did most of the work. You you did all the work on, on the joint material, in the joint background material. I did some checking up on my own, but I haven't read the book, and I I didn't do nearly as much, as, uh, much background work as you did. So when it comes to... The connection with, with with the story, with Shin's story, I would say that you have a stronger connection than I do because you know it better, you know it more intimately, and you shoulder most of the burden here. So, to get back to the question, the whole Camp 18, Camp 14 situation, Shin claims that, originally claimed that he was, you know, in Camp 14, and then later it turned out that at least sometime he had been in, in Camp 18, which apparently is much more lenient, not, not as hellish place as, as Camp 14. And this has been something that has been a major uh, devising argument point here. North Korea used this point heavily to attack Shin and his yeah. story and his, his public personal image. So on, on your personal 
perspective. How do you feel about the question? Does it really matter to you, like the the fact that Shin wasn't there, didn't spend all the time in Camp 14, but he also was in Camp 18? Does that does that like does it somehow make the story, or does it somehow for you? In your personal perspective, does it somehow harm Shin's image? Personally, no. Uh, that's not not the big deal that he changed from Camp 14 to Camp 18. Maybe what is kind of a big deal regarding Blaine Harden's book and, and the film is that he never came out with the other escapes. And that changes the story quite a bit. Where it's just not one escape, now it's three escapes. He first escaped apparently in 1999, then again in 2001, and then again in 2005, January 2nd. Yeah, I guess it's a little problematic that he left out such huge bits of information, especially because it felt like everything was building up to this one escape in the book and the film, as in he had no knowledge really whatsoever, except one month before that final escape that there is something worth going for in the outside world. And then he escaped and miraculously he was able to traverse half of North Korea and escape to China. But now it seems it was probably more his experience from those these previous escapes that he was able to escape finally on in 2005. Okay, uh, and I'm not, not asking you to make any judgment calls here. Like when it comes to Shin and when it comes to what happened, but you know, talking from from simply like like your personal perspective, how you feel about it, why does it matter so much that Shin had those previous escapes? Why like why why does it have have the effect on you that the story somehow is is lessened? And that's a good point. In a way, it really doesn't matter. The key points are still there, and the key points still stand, as far as we know. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that he escaped, he escaped a harrowing situation, he came to safety, that's the core of the book and the film, and at the end of the day, that, that's all that matters. There's just his word. Well, yeah, yeah. And just to, to point out, I'm not trying to like make any kind of bad guy argument here with, with my questioning. I was mm-hmm. merely like like interested in the like like the emotional process that you had right. when you delved more deeply into the story. Well, of course, it was a bit disappointing in a way that Shin could come out at any moment and say that, "Oh, actually, Blaine, we need to make a few changes changes to the book," and that would be the fourth version. Yeah, myself not having read the book. And really, therefore, can, can like being in a position where I can't really say anything that that deep about about the book, about the story, how in, in its written form in in Harden's and you know Henrik, what it's, he did, it's fine. And what he didn't do. Actually, it's kind of your benefit today that you haven't done all these background works. You have just <laughs> yeah. Kind of, because you have only watched the film. You have a different perspective on the whole thing. But coming yeah. coming into the uh, whole timeline of events, 1996, allegedly, in this now fabricated timeline, allegedly April 6th, 
he was jailed and tortured due to his mother's and brother's escape plan. Actually, this was just reported as such first, and then he added that, oh, actually, I was responsible for that reporting on mother and brother. And then later, oh, actually, this occurred when I was 20 years old. Or, or this is a separate event entirely. It could be that he was tortured in 1996 because of the mother-brother escape plan. And then he was tortured again after his second attempt to, to escape uh, the camp. But as far as I could muster to understand what Blaine Harden was trying to say in several interviews, it appears that there was only this one torture uh, scenario and uh, jailing of Shin for seven months. And that would have not been related to mother and brother's escape plan. Rather, Shin's own escape plan. And October 29, 1996, according to this possibly fabricated timeline, Shin and his father are brought to witness the execution of his mother and brother. Well, this did happen. It's another question. When exactly did it happen? But then, of course, if you look at the DPRK propaganda video, then according to... Uh, Shin's father, it seems that he's suggesting that these executions would not have been because of any escape plan, plan that they would have occurred instead uh, because the mo mother and brother would have been involved in a murder case of someone. But if you look at the other argumentations of the DPRK video, there's even problems with the timeline within that video. And there are pretty outrageous claims like that Shin would have raped somebody and if that's the case why wasn't Shin caught or was he caught and yeah there's uh, weird problems with the dates in that video as well yeah and that's like I opened the episode by saying that we're constantly with North Korea it's like he said she said situation yeah. and this is like one of those moments where it really shines like, like the DP RK video is like one of those, but where it once again shows extremely brightly. This this like constant broken telephone effect when it comes to you know talking about anything dealing with North Korea. If you involve North North Korea itself in the discussion, because like you like like you stated previously, you don't believe that Shin did anything wrong. Or he he hadn't done anything bad. And that's a, like a completely valid perspective. That's pretty much the perspective that the story gives you, at least from what I saw in the video and what is the, the image you get from Shin's testimonials at, at UN and, and his activist work, etc. But then there is the North Korean version, mm. which states that Shin is, is a raped minor. And... Once again, like with so many cases with with North Korea, do, do, is is any evidence provided? Well, yeah. Once again, there is the anecdotal testimony, and that's that. Yeah. So you are, you are dealing dealing with once again one side saying like wait, the Western perspective into this subject matter very much is that Shin is pure victim, did nothing wrong. Then there's the North Korean perspective. Shin is a is a raper of a child, and it, it's kind of once again. It's it's he said she said. We we say that that Shin is is a victim of a horrible, horrible regime that that did not do anything that that heinous during his time in North Korea. 
a North Korean say that he, he's, he's a rapist and there is no, like, when, when it comes to that evidence, accusation of a rape, once again, there's no evidence. Right. Pretty much none so ever outside of the, the testimony of, of of the alleged victim's mom. And you're once again, you're dealing with, like, tied with the situation, like, you should believe the victim, but at the same time, we're it's it's North Korea was again, and there really is no evidence, and it's like accusation counter accusation. Yeah, uh, that's that's true. And if you look at the DPRK video, there are things that are suspicious to say the least. The father. Well, look- ba- 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 yeah. basically, the whole video is pretty questionable. Right. Not not simply because of the material on the video, but but simply purely on the on the fact that it comes out of North Korea. Yeah. The most one of the most untrust trustworthiest countries on on the face of the earth. Yeah. It looks like a character assassination attempt, and that's all. It it doesn't doesn't even even look like that. Like that's what it is, and like once again to. To thread this extremely carefully, not taking, like, like, not making a judgment call on the accusations on the video, even if everything that is being said on the video would still hold true, the fact still is that the video itself is nothing more than a character assassination and a counter attack from North Korea's side. Yeah, what this looks like to me is. Uh... Uh, 4060 propaganda attempt, meaning that you you sprinkle in 40% of truth approximately, and then you add with 60% of lies, outright lies, just to make people question things. Just exactly the same method that Russia does with Russia propaganda machine, like RT. Yeah. It could be, could be, and even even if it wouldn't, like even if someday evidence would materialize that would pro- prove that the video is one hundred percent correct and one hundred percent truthful, it it still won't change the video's nature. The video still is very much propaganda, mm. solely based on when the video came out and who the video is mainly meant for, like who is who is the pro- prime audience for the video and what is. Pretty clearly, the, the effect that the video tries to achieve. The video itself, even even if it would be truthful and it would turn out to be a fact, it still is propaganda. Oh yeah, but I'm I'm thinking that there were probably some truthful information in that that made Shin uncomfortable enough that he wanted to come up with some revelations or come out with some revelations rather yeah but 1999 allegedly the first escape from camp 18 as far as we understand and after he is caught his fingernails are pulled off according to Shin he tried to resist so the guards or somebody else got angry and smashed his right hand middle finger with a hammer Hence, his top middle finger. The earlier explanation that is also in Blaine Harden's book says that he was in a workshop and he dropped a a sewing machine, broke it, and that his finger would have been cut by the guards as a punishment. And if you ask North Koreans, Shin did that 
to himself to avoid having to work on on the mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, DPRK video also claims that the that the wounds on his legs are not from. Uh, I, I think they are supposed to be sourced, as far as Shink concerned, sourced from the electrical fence. And according to the doctors, those are telltale signs of electrical <laughs> disturbance in his leg area. 2001, second escape, apparently from Camp 18. And after four months on the run, Chinese police then catches Shin in China and sends him back to North Korea. And as far as I can understand this whole mess, at some point he was transferred back to Camp 14. Somewhere between 2002 or even more likely in 2001, straight after his return to North Korea, he was tortured as a punishment for escaping according to Shin, and kept in underground prison for six to seven months, which now here diverges from the original story, as I pointed out, where he said, says stated that he was punished at, punished at age 13 under suspicion of plotting an escape with mother and brother. Unless that happened as well. Supposedly not. 2004 June, Shin meets his workmate who is from Pyongyang and helps him escape later. And 2004 December, Shin finally opens up to his friend and suggests escaping. Then, about a month later, 2005, January 2nd, they get to work very close to the fence in the mountains, and they try to escape. What the book tells us is that Shin is running ahead to the fence, then stumbles, then his friend catches up and is the first one at the fence, then electrocutes himself then Shin catches up, walks on his dead body, gets some injuries from the voltage anyway, but manages to escape. That's that's the book version, but if you look at the documentary, at least there, this wasn't mentioned, right? No, uh, or, or the story goes the same way, except with the fact that Shin would have been the, the one running on front and stumbling. Like the way how the story goes in, in the film is that the it's it's the friend who first who runs in the in the front and automatically reaches the, the fence first, mm-hmm. tries to climb it, gets electrocuted, machine climbs, you know, above his body. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying anything but uh, it sounds interesting that this is would not be not be mentioned in the, in the documentary. Maybe he said it in the in the interview situation, but it's a little detail just just ha- happens to not be there. So it makes me think, was that the situation at all? Or February 2nd, 2005, Shin flees from North Korea to China. So he's been on the, on the move apparently exactly for one month and manages to bribe his way out of the country. In the book, it's quite clearly explained that Shin is able to get out of the country because he has collected enough food that on the way where there is checkpoints on the way, he's able to bribe the guards. And this happened to be a lucky time for him in North Korea in the sense that the security checks were a little relaxed, but they were just about to be tightened up considerably. But just during this time, he was able to go and use the public transportation system, 
was able to go through the guard checkpoints by bribing. And nobody checked his papers, <laughs> apparently, throughout the whole way. So 2006, after spending at least about a year in China, trying to find work and also working and going from city to city, finally arrive, arrives to South Korea in 2006. And the way that he arrives there is that he got into contact with a reporter in China and the, the guy was nice enough that he took Shin into a cab and they just ride, rode a taxi to the South Korean embassy and they were able to make it look like that, that they were not trying to desperately get into the South Korea embassy. The Chinese police is quite careful around that area, I hear. That, and they are expecting there to be North Koreans who might be running for their life to get into the South Korean embassy. Once they're in South Korean embassy, of course, China can't do anything about them. So yeah, Shin arrives to South Korea 2006 and to crunch the numbers, Camp 14, there's different estimations how many political prisoners there are. It could be like a total of 40,000 on this camp. Overall polit political prison camps house over 250,000 inmates and apparently 400,000 have perished in these camps. Some of these are sourced from the US and South Korea, so take it for what it's worth. But yeah, the film itself. How did you feel about it technically? Uh, <laughs> it, it's not gonna be a good image for me because I'm kind of let down by it. Right. To be completely honest, I don't know what I was expecting. I necessarily, I, I, I didn't even make the case that I was expecting to be kind of blown away by the movie. But I just kind of felt that whatever I was hoping to get from it, I just didn't get. And I don't know what that says about me me as a person. It's an it's an interview-based documentary on... Basically, about a guy who goes through a horrible ordeal in one of the worst countries in, in the world, if not even the worst country in the world. And still, still I kind of feel like it wasn't good. I was hoping better movie. I was what? kind of bored by what? it. And what are you expecting my position on the film to be? I I, I hope that, that you are the one who, who feels that it, it was a good movie and will be, in, in today's episode, will be the one to champion for the film. <laughs> no. <laughs> you, 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 re you read the book. <laughs> you 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 have like like that in more intimate connection with the story. For, for me, it it was just, just you know I hadn't even heard about the guy, which which also might say something about me as a as a you know human rights advocate. Shin supposedly being being like a, a big deal when it comes to as a human rights activist working against North Korea. And oh. then there being my dumb ass who hasn't heard of him. Well, and goes into this film blind. Well, actually, um, after the January 2015, the latest revelations about his story that he came out with, he was quite harshly criticized by some DPRK survivors. And um, after that, there were speculation that he. he 
he probably shouldn't be leading any kind of the link, um, Liberty North Korea, that he shouldn't continue this kind of uh, advocation and he should just stop working in, in that field. And that's the evidence is pointing to the fact that he very much did stop that. After 2015, there is really no videos of the guy. There is one video that is apparently uploaded in 2017 where he's talking with the Holocaust survivor at his home. Other than that, nothing. Anyway, apart from that, I wasn't able to find really anything since 2015. And except his Instagram. <laughs> he's kind of active on Instagram. And apparently he's married, has a beautiful wife and two kids living on the down low. I noticed that exactly the same thing. Uh, doing, doing the background work, I also stumbled upon the, the videos of the other survivors or the other North Korean defectors who were critical of Shin and even went as far as to state that Shin is in fact a harmful person when it comes to anti-North Korea advocacy. Because Shin apparently lied about some details and some events of, of, of concerning his story, he now kind of gives himself out as a as a weapon for North Korea to start debunking not only Shin himself but also the the other defectors and calling questions in, into to their stories. Something that North Korea right away did like the DPRK mm -hmm. video takes advantage of of the discrepancies in in Shin's story and I also noticed that it, it is after 2015 that all of a sudden Shin just disappears from basically from a anywhere there's no videos there is no more articles being written about him but basically all the media around Shin just all of a sudden hits a brick wall and then just complete radio silence. Right. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But... It, it is. I, like, I, I, I questioned about how you feel about, you know, Shin and his, his story. And, well, to, to kind of, you know, put myself on the, on the same spot, I kind of don't know how I, how I feel about the situation of Shin all of a sudden disappearing, you know, after being being called out and after having, you know, having to admit that that there were some discrepancies with with his story and trying to have this addendum to to his his story and telling again what really happened. I don't really know how how I feel about the situation because one way it's it's kind of even even sad, yeah. like. No matter the, the question, did Shin lie or did Shin not lie, and were those lies or white lies or what were they, it, it still is a bit sad that all of a sudden, like, there, there still is a person who defected from North Korea and who evidently, like, like carries at least some scars because of what happened to him, what was done to him in North Korea, his arms being, like, the, mm -hmm. the one thing that even DPRK couldn't attack on. They just ignored it completely and swept it under the, under the rock. Let's not mention the, the malformation in his arms. 
So so there you have like like physical evidence that something completely fucked up happened in in the camps. So mm. we have a survivor and all of a sudden like nothing. Right. One one lieu of attacks and that's it. Maybe he listened to some of that advice then whether it was good or bad you be the judge of that dear listener or whoever. But maybe that was the end of it then he thought that he shouldn't engage with this topic from here on onwards if he would carry on with this line of work then probably there would be further attacks expected from DPRK's end and it's just a kind of a trap that I guess that that would be called kind of catch-22 situation yeah it 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 would I would believe so it's it's kind of a damned if you do damned if you don't Yeah, but yeah, regarding the structuring of the documentary, uh, there's a reason why there's a 30-minute shorter version of this talk on YouTube, edited by someone at their home, because there's a lot of empty space, there's just a lot of moments where the documentary is trying to gain advantage from the silence, the, the silent bits, the thinking bits, where Shin is just looking down and takes 20 seconds before he continues, It doesn't work all the time. For some reviewers, apparently it has worked fantastically. On the other hand, the structuring, this documentary is structured sometimes in a really bizarre way. One is at around the 33 minutes mark. We have scene one, where Shin is speaking about the beaten to death girl at the conference. But then scene two, Shin is scared by the ship horn. And then shot off the ship heading to somewhere. But then scene three, the ex-guard who is watering his plants and smoking a cigarette. Uh, this shot is used as a horribly poor transition. It serves no purpose here whatsoever. Except that scene four, Shin is eating dumplings at home. So to get Shin back to the apartment, we needed apparently a picture of the guard in between there. And then scene five... Back to the main interview moment by the stairs. There's also a moment where he says he could use a break now from the interview session. But instead of cutting out of that situation, the interview session is simply continued on the screen. Which is a weird decision. They could have even tried to put him ask for the break at the end of this whole scene. Or they could have continued the second part of the scene later. Yeah, I have something... And you know, once again, not perhaps the best image for me personally, and like PR-wise, and you know, call me a hypocrite if if you will, but I was, the documentary, I was kind of like let down by the fact that at the end of the day, the documentary is just a recollection of horrible shit that happened in the camp, and I was kind of like, I, I don't know, it's it, it's a horrible thing for me to say, because we are talking about, about a real-life tragedy here, and real human rights violations, but it was kind of like, I may have seen, like, looking back at, like, or having seen a number of Holocaust documentaries, I've kind of perhaps seen this approach too many times. In Holocaust documentaries, you have a lot of documentaries that are simply, you know, uh, from one to three survivors, just telling 
different instances about the cruelty that happened in the camps. And that's the, the whole documentary. And that's kind of what also, you know, Camp 14 is. It's Shin telling you how on Monday they, they viciously beat this little girl. On Tuesday it finds out that, you know, she has died. On Wednesday it was once again, it was the public executions. It's like, here's a horrible event that happened. Here's a horrible event that happened. Here's a horrible event that happened. There really is not even like, like a narrative that would run, run strongly throughout the documentary. It starts to form, form at the end of the whole thing once Shin is imprisoned and meets the old man, kind of has his first experience with with human on human kindness, then is is brought back into the camp, meets the, the stranger and you know, just forms the escape plan kinda of on the spot and then just escapes. Yeah. And that's like that that's the I, I would say the narrative that you get and you get that on the very end of the documentary. Up until that point it's like I remember this thing, I remember that thing, this is something that I saw. Yeah, uh, as far as I can recall, all the events that are shown in the film, they are shown in the right order, uh, if you use the book as the source of this order. And also the juiciest bits were shown in the film, so kind of the core of the book is in the film. Yeah, you- I'm, I'm not calling the question the, the order of things. No, no, no. Uh, what, or, or what? Even, even the choosy, uh, choosiness of, of the bits. Perhaps what what kind of, what I would have found more interesting would have been a documentary that would have more told you how people behaved in the camp or how the camp operated as a system, how it was engineered, or, or a documentary about, you know, somebody who was not in camp, like what is the the day to day life for a for a North, North Korean outside of Pongyang or or something like this? Something that would show you the mechanics of the system inside of North Korea. Yeah, I'm not sure which one came first, the, the book or the film. I will just go on a limb and say that it was probably the book that was first. And whatever the case, it feels as if the interviewer is not able to ask interesting enough questions it feels like kind of loosely planned situation where they just come to Shin's small apartment apparently in Seoul and uh, they just kind of kind of flow with it and where Shin is again telling all the harrowing main points of his story but um, like you said there's something lacking and I think the thing that is lacking is perhaps the somehow failed attempt at the tone of this documentary. Uh, I believe it's highly subdued in its tone for a reason. It's a stylistic choice. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to work. There's so much that you could do with the elements of Shin's story, goddammit. I mean, dead mother, brother, torture, teaming up with an inmate, escape... But then the film keeps this kind of earthly tone. And like you kind of said, "Ah, I recall this thing. And oh, then there was, I think, the death of my mother hanged and brother shot. Perhaps it's supposed to feel like a memory that is growing more distant every day for him. That could be. 
but I'm not certain if that's the, the right approach to take for the documentary. Yeah. Like something that I actually was hoping that I would have gotten from, from the documentary, even if, if it would have just stayed with Shin and what happened in the camp, or, or that would have been the focus point. I, it wouldn't have been like one of the documentaries that would try to explain North Korea as a system. But something that it could have used would have been more deeper engagement with Shin and how he is after his experiences in the camp. The documentary tackles this a bit. They do talk about... Uh, there is a moment when Shin talks about how he feels anger when he takes takes a shower and he sees the scars and uh, how it's it's hard for him to to kind of reconcile with the fact that his body is physically broken. But those are kind of small moments. And I would have actually appreciated if at the end of the documentary we would have had a, a noticeable larger chunk just going into how the life feels now, how he perceives the world. And talking about, you know, missing opportunities here, or documentary just wasting this approach, in my opinion, is the scene with the Link organization, which I get why why it's it is there. Shin apparently uh, large, uh, collaborated noticeably with with Link, but the Link scene itself actually does nothing here. Yeah, and that could have actually work like if you would have given more shine for the link link and if you would have tackled asked more questions about how shin is now it could have actually like worked you could have bring out you know more he more of his emotional side after escaping the camp and have now having to to live in in free society and you could have had like him talk about more about how he feels about his advocacy how he feels about his work with link what he what he even does with link because none of that is actually approached in in this documentary gosh that's so true yeah i'm not exactly sure when shin left the link organization but that could have been also something you could have used if you yeah if that would have been available for you. One thing that I paid attention to is it it feels like they don't have enough B-roll for the film. Like seriously, you have the interview situation where Shin is sitting by the stairs apparently in his apartment and the, there's not really a lot of film footage that would turn away from that shot kind of carrying with the voiceover to I don't know, Shin flipping pancakes uh, or anything like that. Often what happens is that we have the same shot, but from a diff- different time code. So it's just the voice traveling while the, the film is sort of out of sync. Yeah, that could be. I, in fact, then just not having enough material could actually be a big factor on why I just didn't kind of feel it with this documentary because that to talk about you know about the other material that they have outside of Shin himself a big thing or feature here in in the film is the the two ex-North Korean 
one is a guard and one was ex secret police member and yeah. the interview ma- material that you got from them and even they they kind of feel and once again once again you know shitty thing for me to criticize the film for this but i was kind of bummed by the fact that i didn't feel that they really had a place here on this story because they have no mm. connection to shin himself i but, feel yeah and 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 you know, I I admit like like I'm a, I'm an asshole for criticizing the movie for not having any of the guards that were actually took part in imprisoning Shin. Like of course you can't get those persons. You have to work with those you can get, those who defected from North Korea. And you you know things are what they are. But at the same time. The two North Korean guards that you have are people who were not even in the camps that Shin himself was in. That is correct. I felt also alienated by those moments. They feel somehow, even though they are related, I felt that they are a bit distantly related. It it felt like... Yeah, distantly yeah. related. And... Uh, the story of Shin has enough material, as we have discussed, enough material plentifully to keep the documentary going as such so these sidetrack interviews uh well they support shin's account i guess that's what it's mostly doing i i took it that there the reasoning for them to be there was twofold the first one was to to confirm shin's claims which they managed to do by proxy right uh, Shin states that he was tortured on the camp and then there is a guard who tells that yeah we did torture people on on the camp that I was guarding certainly yeah that, that's something that happens and the second point for them to be there would be an attempt to make the case that we provided all the viewpoints that we didn't just stick with Shin but here is also you know the outside viewpoint that collaborates with with Shin and we are kind of shining more light into this situation. Like you, you get a confirmation from, from someone else than the focus point of the documentary for the atrocities that are being brought up in, in the documentary. But once again, the problem is that it's not like a direct confirmation because nobody can, con- none of them can, neither one of them can confirm Shin's experiences because they never came into contact with him and not only that but I'm not sure if it's the film doing something to these two characters or if they are doing it to themselves mainly making them look kind of like bad characters Uh, there's this comments like well you can read it in multiple ways but comments like I haven't been sleeping well can I make myself comfortable in this chair? Whatever that is supposed to mean in the in here. And then the these quotes and the phone fiddling could be seen as the documentary setting them up to look remorseless, disconnected, petty, but also could be that I'm just making it up. I, I kind of got that same feeling. Right. Like To me, the, the key point where I felt that the documentary was trying to do this was when the ex-secret policeman, they, they are in some type of hotel room, and the policeman 
starts to ask like where's the ashtray and starts to ask can we open the window in in the hotel room i kind of felt that that's like one of the moments where the film tries to paint these two guys as as like like you said disconnected and uncaring like they are supposed to talk about these these horrible things that they made in north korea and oh looky here he's casually smoking and he's He's asking for ashtray, kind of vainly. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt that, um, that that this is gathering even more questions in the audience's head on this weird sidetrack where you're suddenly asking to yourself, hey, are, are these guys still on the loose? Are these guys just happily, freely roaming around South Korea where they are just admitting that they have... Uh, killed people, tortured people, raped people, or have they served their sentence? What, what is the current situation? Or do they even get a sentence? What, what is the policy towards this in South Korea? I have no idea. Yeah. And perhaps the, the most condemning moment for them, for, for these two ex-cards, especially for, for the, the secret police guy, and I don't know if this is the documentary doing it or if this is... Just, you know, if the ex-police man just is, is such a horrible piece of shit as a person, but the documentary does have the moment when he's wondering, he states out loud that this is like the only time I'm going to talk about what I did in North Korea and North Korea altogether. And the only reason I'm doing this is that if I wouldn't be now talking out, somebody else would. And I just some have to make certain that, you know, I speak before others speak for me. Yeah, it felt kind of like that they are disconnected with the events and just saying, yeah, that happened, but that was our role and, and uh, we didn't know right from wrong. We never questioned that. It was just what we did. So, yeah, can I have another ashtray, please? Yeah, and and partly, I, I do believe that partly, you know, at least partly, that is what they are. Like, they are that disconnected from what they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eat shit for for that. Goddamn. But it's... I'm kind of surprised that... I, I kind of feel that the film itself is a bit at odds with itself. Especially when it comes to these two characters. Because mm-hmm. it kind of starts to feel like it doesn't exactly know... Uh, does it want to wanna have remorse... For the X cards, or does it want to condemn them and show them in the in the worst possible light? Because at times it it, it is somewhat remorseful for to to them mm-hmm. when it gives them the moment to explain that you know they are also victims of the of the society and the cruelty that they committed was at least part. Of, well, they make it out it it was purely because of how the society shaped them. So they are also victims, and they victimized others, you know, because they themselves are are victims. And then it also gives them the... And it it directly asks them, will they someday come clean to their own kids about what they have done? Mm. And it gives them that moment. So in those moments, it, it, it is remorseful. And it, in my opinion, it wants to paint out as them as as people, two men who are being haunted by 
the past misdeeds that deeds that they have done, and then then on the next turn, the the image that you get from them is completely that they are just despicable, completely vain pieces of shit. Yeah, but on the disconnectedness, I would even argue that Shin is a little disconnected throughout this documentary, and fair enough. He arrived to South Korea in 2005. By 2012, when this documentary came out, we could all already say that Shin has probably talked about his experiences hundreds and hundreds of times. So at this point, he may be a little tired of it, and the documentary is trying to make him look more harrowed and terrified of thinking about these things. But oftentimes, it more feels like do I have to do this again? <laughs> yeah, that was also the the kind of the feeling I got too. Right. Like certainly, yes. The the film makes certain that you get the image, you get the message that Shin is is haunted by what was done to him, and th- those experiences still limit his ability to to connect with the world. Uh, the biggest moments on on this note would be the shots of of his his like bedroom where it's completely barren from anything he just has like like a mattress on the floor and that's his whole apartment right he's he's so ascetic but basically in, in his daily life it comes comes clear that he still is carrying a deep emotional trauma Something that he perhaps never can actually get over, off, you know, due to his experiences. But at the same time, like like you pointed out, there are like number of of moments where it just feels like he's up to here with having to retell his story, and he's more like, do I have to tell this? Like you said, do I have to tell this once again? Somebody who is probably not traumatized and hasn't been telling about harrowing events is probably the sketch artist. So the sketch artist near the beginning of the film is asking from Shin when he's drawing the the picture of the camp, he asks, were the guards scared of revolts? Well, the answer to that is not translated in the subtitles. And for me, this question also felt weird. And should I say possibly, possibly naive? Because Jean seems to be answering yes, but the yes is not subtitled. And this is like, because from all I know, that that would be delusional from the guards, because machinating a revolt would be close to impossible. So first, as I said, you're always working in pairs so that both can report on each other's misdeeds. And for people having born in the camps, you don't know of anything better, so why revolt? I think that's the big key issue, why there's no revolts or uprisings. And if you revolt, you will lose your daily food ration or you're alive. So the sketcher's question sounds like he doesn't really know about North Korea. If North Korea knew that there's a thing called revolt, they could have done it long ago. That's my argument, and I'm sticking to it. And moreover, later in the documentary, Shin says that 
In all the years I, I was there, I never saw anyone complaining. If I were Shin and hearing this question about revolts, I, uh, yeah, that doesn't quite add up. Uh, talking about the, the sketches, now this is the second documentary that we have both seen that uses drawn images to to tell its story. At times even uses animation. So how did you feel about the the quality of, well, I, I don't know what to call it. At times animation, at times sketches here in, in the film. Well, I suppose this sketch guy here is supposed to be the guy who drew and animated all the animated shots in this film. And that's that is the reason why we see him here. And I didn't really think about it even for a long time. Only only on the second watch, the thought kind of crossed my mind that that's probably what they're trying to do. As far as the quality goes, I felt that it was just okay. And when I was watching this, I didn't even have any... I mean, I've there was nothing surprising for sure about the sketches. Um, com- coming from the book to the documentary, I wasn't like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. It was almost exactly as I think of it. Yeah, <laughs> I have to ask because that was also kind of my take on them. Right. Like they, they, they ain't bad, but they're kind of average. Yeah, like the guards when they're... There's one this shot where the guards are going towards the, the camera. They're just levitating there. So it's just a... A to B movement of, of these kind of sprite elements going forwards. Very simple solutions. Yeah, and, and uh, zoom is another thing that it, you know, they try to use in order to kind of create an illusion of some type of animation happening. Mm-hmm. I was surprised that Chin visited the border with North Korea. It's quite risky to go visit the border as a North Korean, I hear. There's been some cases where such visitors are are they try to recapture these back to North Korea but there he was probably for filming purposes and it might also be that the filming purposes that actually protected him yeah at time like I once again I'm not expert on how much of these these recapturings happen and can't really assess the ritual uh, the risk level of going near the border again. But perhaps, you know, once again, having the camera crew there was something that perhaps protected Shin and made certain that no, they didn't try it. Nobody came to try to recapture him. Would have been kind of a bad look for basically everyone involved if all of a sudden a random North Korean guard comes, shows up and tries to recapture Shin while the cameras are rolling. Yeah. Well, maybe you've seen the the famous escape of this guy who supposedly was a bit drunk driving in North Korea border and just got a jeep and just drove over the border, got his jeep a little jammed around the border and then had to exit the vehicle and run and cross the border. But he got multiple gunshot wounds but survived the ordeal. And that was a oh, situation where... yeah. Some rumors about this, but I never actually, you know, I've never done the time to actually get to know the story or look up the story myself. Yeah, 
Well, there's some, well, less than anecdotal evidence of shooting across the border to South Korean side, at least. Yeah, and then there are the, the occasional bombings of, of the South Korean territory that has happened. Yeah, the island and... Of course, the, the official explanation, if I remember correctly, is either that it's a preemptive counterattack against South Koreans who were once again trying to do something, or that, you know, the missile just accidentally misfired at their direction. Yeah, and then there was uh, the poisoning of the brother of Kim Jong-un in an international airport, unbeknownst to the people who actually <laughs> poisoned him. Maybe I shouldn't even go into this territory. I already know I should s- shut my mouth, but let's go anyway. Like Shin Purshin lives in North Korea prison camp under this god figure Kim family, which he's unaware of basically anyway. But then he moves to South Korea and later contributes the escape to the Christian god. So even though Shin didn't know much about the Kim family, there's kind of irony to me here. The Christian missionaries really are quite effective so from god to god i take that silence as uh, uh, it's it's me not knowing like once again not knowing the situation (laughs) well enough to actually say anything about it fair enough well just to jump once more to the kind of discrepancy section here the teacher versus the guard thing that kind of bothered me okay in the book it's different to the documentary uh shin tells in the documentary that i ran to the teacher and said that i suspected that my mother and my brother wanted to flee that night so there's a discrepancy because if he's really talking about a teacher in the documentary then that's different from the book in the sense that in the book he says that since it was very late at night not a direct quote but since it was very late at night he couldn't find his teacher at the school. School was supposedly closed. So the next best thing was to report the incident to the school's security guard. And later the teacher supposedly asked and beat up Shin saying, why the hell did you not inform me instead of him? But talking about discrepancies, I, I guess we can we can land this one, which is like all the discrepancies with, with Shin's stories, which is the DPRK. Counterattack propaganda video that that they made the two-parter, which uh, basically has a whole view of allegations against Shin and uh, makes statements alike that he wasn't even ever hungry. This is something that that North Korea repeatedly pull, pulls off when whenever it's discussing about its camps. There's a amble of food <laughs> always. They have so much food, and food is one of the major things in also in, in Shin's story, like you point, pointed out. That, uh, but basically, even in the documentary, the, the catalyst that Shin gives to his decision to escape the camp hmm. is, is food. He does that because he wants to eat different things, things that were never given to him, and he wants to have, finally have his belly full. Which is something that the, the DPRK videos state that absolutely was not the case. Because there was so much food and Shin was given more food when when he complained that he is hungry. So, like, 
how do you feel about the DPRK video? Not necessarily in, in the way of like, is it is it true or is it is it flawless? Well, partly also. Like, how much do you you already said that you kind of feel that it's sixty percent lies, perhaps sprinkled with forty percent of truth. But like, once again, this is this is the famous he said she said situation. So how does how does the DPRK video make you feel? Are you like brimming with anger or disgust or just quietly laughing at, at North Korea's attempts? Or what's your reaction? Well, having been watching so much of much of our brother Russia's propaganda from different channels and the use of trolls online, especially specializing in this in this forty sixty tactic or character assassin assassinations, information pollution. Well, I've seen these kind of things before. It didn't really make me feel one way or the other, but I was very aware of what could be happening here. I felt that there were, <laughs> there were, it could mean nothing, but there were a lot of cuts at interesting timings in that video. It felt kind of disconnected as well the the reactions of these people there were maybe some questions from the interviewer where the reactions might have been authentic from the father and the stepmother most of the time i felt that they were rehearsed answers so i felt like yeah bullshit and when it comes to the food yeah i guess they must be doing well with all their rice deliveries that were coming in millions of tons to North Korea. Rice deliveries, by the way, that nobody has seen of the refugees, according to their words. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then again, Jin's dad shows some picture which shows pretty well fed six-year-old and states that this is Jin, as you can see see from the from the picture, he has eaten well. Well, that's interesting. I haven't heard anything about Shin uh, taking anything on that image, that picture. So, yeah. Yeah, once again, not trying to make the case that the video is at all truthful, but like the story revolves heavily around food. And it's kind of also, it's infuriating, it's tiresome. It's confusing and it's at, at times it's it's kind of interesting how whenever you talk about or whenever you try to to discuss with North Korea about well subject matter X it, it always goes into this territory. The another case that came heavily in mind when I was doing the background research is the the quite recent. Otto Wormbeer case, which is another bloody example of this. The question, was he tortured and who killed him and what killed him? Being like, once again, like being, being a fucking empty hole, black hole of discussion where they can't bloody confirm anything. Nobody can once again confirm anything except the, the fact that Wormbeer died. I can't really remember the details, so I I better not say too much about that. I just remember that, yeah, he apparently, allegedly, possibly didn't, maybe did, steal the poster, then was 
was imprisoned for that. What happened after that? Not sure. There were some evidences in his body about something. What that something is, no idea. Yeah, and that's a extremely taxing. Even even if you have like like a solid understanding of what happened and and the facts, but but simply the fact that North Korea constantly squirms around the subject matter and always provides like the next piece of of propagandistic evidence for this thing most definitely did not happen and this thing is not happening and this is a misrepresentation by the west it, it, it it's like, it's like the situation where it's like interesting behavior for the first 150 50 times and after that it's just like can you guys just finally cut it out uh, i would even say that since we've been fed a lot of propaganda lately <laughs> For example, from our, our neighbor. Just looking back on this whole nonsense being spewed from that direction and then seeing what evidence we have gathered from what Russia has do done as like a information and disinformation spewer, then it makes me constantly think, go back to the fact that I think we in, in the so-called West, we are just too damn naive. Yeah, that we are a bit uh, perhaps too trusting, naive. Yeah, no. too too trusting, and we, whenever we fi find some information that seems like an outright lie, then we are still like, oh, are the Russians now in Ukraine? I'm quite not sure. Maybe we should check some aerial footage. But of course, I understand yeah. that there's there's a reason why we need the evidence. There's a reason why you need to be sure before you take serious action. But still, like, yeah, it's it, we are too easily fed with this bullshit. We kind of are, and the the actual downside side of it is that there's a there's a set number of enemies. Who are well aware of this this little weakness in us uh -huh. are hell bent on taking any advantage of it that they can. Yeah, precisely. Oh my God! Like looking at at Russia, it's just, we have been the victims of this false in information campaign for so long. Like at least in this kind of online form, ever since we basically got internet working. And we're still wondering, oh, blah, 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 what's happening? What's happening in Ukraine? Or who was responsible for the poisoning of this person? Maybe it wasn't a poisoning at all. Mysteriously, some business leaders just happened to die after just that event that kind of make you wonder, oh, is there a connection? Not sure. Yeah, kind of. And I would partly blame this on, on also... Like, we kind of, we in the West, hell, at least we in Finland, we kind of want to believe that the whole world sees the world and has the same values and thinks the same way as we do. Yeah, yeah. And it's, like, like first of all, it's it's a false impression, and it's even somewhat, I, I would say, wrong from our perspective to, to actually think that everybody in the world, every single nation 
things the same way as, as we do because oh my god we are so goddamn great and our way of thinking is so goddamn great but also there's the unfortunate side effect that it actually it has had real life real world consequences like you you mentioned the the, the situation in ukraine well evidence of that we we completely missed the 2014 russian invasion and sheets of of ukraine its territories simply because we once again fall victim to this we we, we saw and we were told that tanks are are invading ukrainian territory in yeah. 2014 and our reaction was let's ask the, the russians the russians uh, say, said no we ain't <laughs> and we were kind of I guess we have to take them by their word. And for like well it's it's 2022 and we are we are re- reaping what we sow back in 2014. Yeah. Kind of a tangent here again but uh, thinking back on the whole Crimea takeover it was clear as day what was going on but we somehow we we just wanted to a little bit more confirmation constantly. We, we Perhaps want... the satellite images that we saw were not were exactly... Maybe what we saw in the nat- satellite images was not what we really was happening. Let's just confirm it once or more. Yeah, and after the place was taken over, then I felt that people were still a little bit... Well, I don't know. We don't really know what's really going on. And I guess the, it's okay because the people want it to be that way i guess the whole vote was legal and fair and i i I'm, i don't really know it's kind of 60 40 thingy so we'll just we'll just let's forget about it i think it will be fine yeah it's kind of like when the the f- russian foreign foreign affairs ministry uh said in 2016 in one email that more or less that there are no russian troops in Ukraine, it's impossible that there would be Russian troops in Ukraine because there's no Russian troops in Ukraine, and there never will be. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 precisely like that, and, it's, and that's the way how it's repeatedly it's with North Korea. Yeah, and that I, I guess that's the the nature of of the discourse, which is which is what brought warm beer so strongly into my mind because it's the it's the same goddamn uh, kind of mechanically it's the same discussion that is going on also with warm beer you you have a pathologist that didn't find signs of torture on on his body so now it's brought up to question was was otto tortured in 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 north korea or was he not and there's somebody and the the medical examination finds signs that there was like a large amount of time there was a la- lack of oxygen to his brain but they can't just figure out what caused it so now they are juggling with all the balls like was it was it torture was it um, some type of a, a reaction to a to a medical drug was he just holding his breath what was it and it's like it's it's kind of a maddening situation, really. What it was, it was an American imperialist pig in a North Korean cell. So you make the math. 
pretty much. But 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 somehow somehow nobody manages to actually like nobody manages to reach a resolution in in that question either. Yeah. To a point where it's still open to a debate like what happened. And and the major narrative seems to have taken taken the form of well we will never know the truth. But we will know the truth to the quickies today. Do you want to take over or Well, I I can I can take the, take over. And skip most of them, because most of them don't, don't actually apply. Well, what, what resonated with you most, or, or the least? Um, you being the, the best expert with the story from the two of us. Well, now talking of the film, what resonated the least here was the, the dragging and the bizarre editing of the film. And hey, I want to ask you, I'm going to clarify with you this one. Was anything that Shin said in this documentary uh, revelationary, re- revelatory, or, or something that you had never heard before? Where was it kind of a blind spot that hey, this is kind of crazy shit that is happening here, and uh, we're not doing anything about it? Oh my god! No, right? No, no, it wasn't. Yeah, I was kind of, kind of already like, well, fuck, it's it's North Korea, it's it, it's crazy shit day after the next so kind of everything that there was in this documentary was something that i either was was already well aware of me being you know the the number one consumer pick for western anti-north korean propaganda or it was something that i may not yet have heard of but i wasn't surprised and it was such a minor detail so no, there, there really was no revolutionary moment. And also the film kind of didn't spark in me this, oh my god, we have to do something with North Korea. And I think... it kind of just, just went into the same old feeling that I have had, that North Korea is absolute shithole and we should do something about it. But even I don't know exactly what. Right, and I don't think we both are advocating for... Like over dramatization or more dramatization, even necessarily of of the story. There's just something kind of one tonish about it. Yeah, one tonish is a is a good adjective to to describe the story. Right. Which you know, <clears throat> yeah. fuck. I'm I'm gonna actually quickly steal steal your adjective. Do you do you have a new favorite adjective to describe <laughs> the movie? I'll go with subdued. <laughs> uh, and well, oh, once again, I, I guess this this is something that that can be asked, even though this is going to be a hard one. Do you think that this will have a staying power? I don't think so. And frankly, the whole mess with Shin storytelling is just gonna gonna hurt the legacy if any of this film and the book. It's it's gonna fuck, fucked up. There's no repairing it. Even if those changes to the story are not that important to the overall message. Yeah, I, I kind of have to agree with you. To me, it's, it's not because of the changes. But because I've kind of seen this, this same situation happen with North Korean stories before. Like, I, I don't know if you, if you remember this book, The Tears of My Soul, which was... Yeah. Written by yeah, it, it it was a it was a huge thing 
when it came out, it was was it sometime in in the nineties, right? When it was released, I don't remember when the publication was. But anyways, a, hu- a huge thing back on its day, written by an ex North Korean spy and a terrorist who was one one of the way to pull off the the airplane bombing attack which killed I don't even remember how many people mm-hmm. but yeah a major thing does anybody remember that book today well kind of no because North Korea and North Korea is crazy 365 days a year well we we talk about the the Otto Warmbier case which I feel kind of is also at this point kind of being forgotten kind of just you know is buried into well we don't even know what happened see so we we have like we we have these moments where, like it's kind of a, a repeated occurrence where we get somebody and we get a story relating to north korea and a big deal is made out of it hmm. oh my god can you believe it? north korea is such a crazy place and sometimes time, time pass and then we kind of just forget about it because it's North Korea and North Korea is, is crazy 365 days a year. So it's kind of, kind of a, it just gets yeah. lumped into the sea of crazy. And I kind of feel, feel that that's also the, the legacy, the fate of Shin's story. Interesting that you said that there was one review of this film who wrote... But now I wonder whether we all have to be a little insane to find ourselves not too terribly surprised by anything he has to tell us. Uh, this is from a film review from Marianne Johansson on flickphilosopher.com. Which is kind of the case. There's some feel of oversaturation to, to violence. So we might not have the healthy reaction from this documentary either. Yeah, that could also be. It's like a good word to describe, describe it, kind of. Oversaturation of violence. Right. So, coming from, you know, that harrowing epiphany with, with North Korea documentation, did you actually like the film? No, now, talking about just about the film and not necessarily like, like the story as a whole with, with books and everything that happened and is being, has been said outside of the movie it was just passable it it goes through all the main parts of the book like i said it's it's just barely decently made i in contrast most of the reviews are praising the film and i checked out the director uh mark wies he's a german documentary filmmaker has made a few fictional ones too but Overall, seems that his documentaries are pretty well appreciated. This is the only one I have seen of the guy's production, and I wasn't really blown away. Yeah, I kind of once again, I I share the the feeling. I, I don't know, like it's I perhaps should, and perhaps I do feel a bit shame, ashamed by the by the fact that like, the film just didn't have that 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 effect on me. Yeah. But I kind of looked at it and I was like, you said that Mark Weiss, I, I also haven't seen his other work, 
but apparently like he's is well like as a documentarian and com- coming from this this one film i kind of have to ask like why yeah i kind of look at the poster i look at the potential of the story it has all the ammo necessary for a fantastic documentary but it just barely survives it's just there is nothing that would kind of lift it up from the other similar material yeah yeah that that's exactly what what you said that that's my main problem also and, and once again you know i don't know perhaps i'm a like a despicable ass of a human being because of this because once again like that the material itself or or, or or the real life behind the material like certainly yeah is is unacceptable and is inexcusable it's a goddamn we're talking about human rights violations here yeah but like as as disgusting it might be to to say that you have been oversaturated with violence perhaps that's exactly what has happened like too many horror stories and at some point you know just fail to connect with them like you should perhaps should right i guess i have to voice it out as well make no mistake everything that he supposedly went through is absolutely abhorrent horrible disgusting despicable and it was told, told much better in the book yeah in in case if, if that was somehow unclear to somebody in, in the audience <laughs> No, no, we we ain't we ain't still like like the North Korean shilling podcast. <laughs> no fear. But to jump into the next like 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 hard hard one to answer. Like okay, okay, the film didn't have an effect on us. But would you recommend this movie? Ah, uh, I would recommend it as a bonus feature for those who have read the book and everything. That's in the film, and anything about the visuals, it will not surprise you. Then there's the retractions of the story of Shin. Then again, actually, uh, he uh, later his story re- revamps that he made. Kind of make the documentary more interesting, if you know about the changes that he made to his story. It's kind of good food for thought here on the connections of trauma memory uh, and behavioral psychology i suppose so on that framing i will give this a very careful recommendation if you haven't read the book though uh, well you can find better ones but it's an interesting story it's a stuff lackluster documentary check it out if you're into north korean horror stories if you are maybe into similar material, you could also check Park Yun Mi's book or Joseph Kim's book. There's so many of these uh, escape books from North Korea that you can't even believe it. So then there's a book of a South Korean journalist called Suki Kim, which I mentioned earlier, and the undercover North Korean English teacher also highly recommended. There's no doubt that North Koreans often find their kind of career in North Korea uh, related topics. And well, there's can be very good reasons for that, as you might not have immediately other skills to share. But yeah, if you're into supporting also the 
the, the cause, maybe go to Link's page, libertynorthkorea.org. Go donate to help people like Shin. Yeah, I on my end, like, I, I, I too find this, uh, this a hard question because we are, we are kind of dealing with, with, a, with a story that should be heard because of simply, you know, because, because people should be aware of, of North Korea and what goes in there. That's that's a good argument for, to just watch it. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, like you said, it's it's a lackluster documentary. Mm. So it it comes in down to question: Should it be recommended because of the subject matter, even if if the documentary, the product itself, kind of leaves you wanting? I. It's a tricky one. I I kind of it's it's it is a tricky one. I kind of can't bring myself to recommend it because mm. because I, I think that the film itself is not good enough and this this once again this is something that like I I come from the perspective of only seeing the movie and and not really like like having having a deeper connection with with the story so the, it, it's like my my viewpoint is extremely limited here but from my limited viewpoint I just kind of can't give a recommendation here. Not 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 because I, I have a problem with with the story necessarily, but because I have a problem with the execution. And that is a totally valid argument. If nothing, I, I don't know if it is. Like I, I, I partly I feel like shit for for you know giving this judgment to that the film. It's it's kind of like. Well, well, hell, go to YouTube, go to Asian Boss or whatever channel, find out about. Camp 14 and Shin's story from, from there. Uh, mission accomplished, really. You don't need to watch this documentary, necessarily. Or those numerous uh, talks that he has given. Yeah, or, or you know, but hell, may, maybe do what, what Kari did and, and read the book. Right. But can, can't speak from experience, but perhaps, you know, the book really does do a better job. Blaine Harden is a really great storyteller, so... It's quite solid, and I know it can be kind of hard to maybe get into it if if you know you're aware of all these changes to his story. But hell, whatever happened was horrible, so maybe you should know about it. Yeah, it's kind of a, from my end. It, it's e- e- extremely soft-assed Western like thing to say. Yeah, it's a, it's a horrible story, and, you know, perhaps you should really know about the story, but find a better story, Gerald. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't quite like the story. There wasn't enough I, 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 and... I, 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 I quite didn't like how it was told. <laughs> <laughs> but un- unfortunately, yeah, that's kind of, kind of like my, my closing argument. <laughs> Uh, I I do apologize for that, but it's. Uh, <laughs> I just I think this for, reminds. For fuck's sake! I I I have kind of the same problem with some of the uh, Holocaust documentaries these <laughs> days. Uh. <laughs> and you know, take it as you will. <laughs> fuck. This this reminds me of some distant episode that we did, and we were kind of tackling with the same situation. Maybe the story was based on true events, and we were like. Yeah, like the storytelling is not quite up to par here. <laughs> it, that's kind of the the kind of the, the 
Western Western perspective. How else to describe it? You 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 can't have more more hideous depiction of Western imperialism as this take. <laughs> yeah, good good for you to, to survive from a from North Korean prison camp. <laughs> the next time you do it, yeah. find a way to tell a better story about it. Find a better writer. <laughs> find a better writer. So, but, but with that out of, out of the way, my, my, my dear Western imperialist listeners, would, would, would you guys recommend North Korean horror stories? <laughs> Tell me your favorite horror story. <laughs> which book should we buy? The... We, 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 which, one, which, which, which one was the most horrific? Yeah, which one kept you at the edge of your seat the most? <laughs> for, for, for the list of top five horror stories and post it on our social media Facebook page. Oh God, what's wrong with this world? <laughs> what's wrong with me? <laughs> you can rest. Well, that's that's that. Any thoughts before we head to outro? <laughs> no, I, I I guess this. I, I guess I've reached the right amount of self-loathing. So let's just reach the outro. <laughs> I think there was plenty of uh, teeth grinding in this episode, just trying to navigate this very delicate subject and trying to speak correctly about it. And now I think it goes without saying that it's fair enough that we would go back to some... Well, I guess it's kind of (laughs) the same situation where we find ourselves in. Is it true or is it not true? Should we go and check out... Bedtime stories from YouTube. <laughs> well, fuck! Why? Why not? Why not? Yeah. I'm. I'm at, at this point, I'm. I'm too exhausted. <laughs> you, you know, trying to juggle, uh, juggle this subject matter and and how I should feel about it. I I might actually need a break from from actually having to think about Shin story and North Korea. Yeah, so in the next episode, I guess we're breaking new ground again, as we are. Bedtime Stories is a YouTube channel where there's a narrator that tells bedtime stories. Stories that might have origins in truth, stories that might be just that, stories. But should should we go with like five stories from the channel and then just kind of mull it over? Yeah, let's let's like I have never visited the, this YouTube channel. I have heard about it, but I've never actually listened one single episode. So you know, let's take five. It might be a good first intro for me. More than and, enough, I'm sure. And well, you most likely are more familiar with with the channel. So most likely you kinda already have an idea of some some of good stories. We can t- like talk about yeah. the, the subject matters. If that's something that like works both of us, and then just listen those and you know see see what happens. And this could be great fun for our listeners. You you can do the background work yourself. Just open YouTube and go watch a bunch of videos. Yeah, this time you don't have actually have to go to Amazon to, to buy 
här av obskur DVD or Blu-ray copy of, copy of, of movie that has German dubbing and subtitles <laughs> in it, even though it was filmed in France or something like that. <laughs> you usually have to. Right. And with that said, you can continue this conversation with us online. And uh, that's it for Camp 14. Thank you for joining us. See you in a fortnight. Oh, until then. Kari is a host for the movie podcast and joins us now about... <laughs> <laughs> You might get into legal trouble if enough people would actually fucking tune in. But katsompa nopeasti, oliko tässä jotain vielä, mistä ei ole puhuttunut. Joo, small details and dates oli muutettu ja sitten oli jotain väitteitä, että se on sata kertaa muuttanut mielipidettä, whatever, ja isä puhuu niistä scarseista ja sitten oli vähän ex-murderia ja raiskausta ja 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 American imperialist peaking